0: Some scientists were not happy with Big Bang cosmology because it suggested that the universe, contrary to Greek philosophy and other contemporary science, the universe is not eternal. Matter did not ceaselessly exist in negative infinity direction. It was not always here. It had a beginning point. Uh, The universe had a definitive beginning point and it was not eternal. That stood cosmology on its head in many ways. And alternate theories were developed. Okay, if we've got a Big Bang, let's explain it in some other way. Okay, we see now definitive evidence for the fact that the universe is expanding, so maybe there are some other explanations for it besides what Hubble was promoting as Big Bang. Um, And so the first... Alternate theory to emerge was the steady state theory by uh, Sir Fred Hoyle. Um, Hoyle said, yes, we see the universe expanding, but it's always been expanding. And so he promoted what he called a continuing creation model, where density is the only constant. And so in this expansion, um, things do literally pop into existence out of nothing. And the balance between energy and mass, it goes back and forth. And um, without getting into all that he, he said, um, he knew that he had a problem because he wasn't explaining where where this thing originally came from, other than the fact that if it always existed, and yes, it's always expanding, but it's, it's, just, it's always been here and it's always been expanding. And so it didn't really carry the day. In fact, there was another scientist who uh, refuted his suggestion, his hypothesis, with the discovery of something called background radiation. And without getting too technical into that, um, he suggested that if the, Big Bang, if, if the Big Bang theory is true, as Hubble was promoting it, there would be something in nature called background radiation um, coming from the, the original heat of the Big Bang. And there would be, his calculation was it would have to be 2.7 degrees above absolute zero. Okay, just set that aside for a moment. That was eventually discovered. And Hoyle himself eventually abandoned his own theory of, of the steady state universe. Another proposal back in those days, and we're talking about the mid-1960s here, was the oscillating universe. In other words, if you think of an accordion you know, uh, that, that somebody plays, you've got the keys on one side, and, and the uh, you know, it goes back and forth. In other words, the, the universe, yes, it's expanding now, but it will eventually contract like a rubber band, and then it'll, you know, the energy will just reverse itself, and it will go back again. And so there's an oscillating universe. Um, gravity is dependent upon mass, and... Um, this, this theory was eventually rejected because it was calculated that there wouldn't be enough mass in the universe to allow for gravity to act on it and pull it back and forth. So this theory, um, notice what keeps happening. We don't like the implications, the theological implications of the prevailing hypothesis that the universe had a beginning point, and so we look for other explanations. We can't stomach this one. Now, around that time, Stephen Hawking... The brilliant uh, theoretical physicist, uh, he's a guy who's in the wheelchair, uh, speaks through the the speech synthesizer. He just actually came out with a a new book that has a lot of people talking. Uh, Back in that day, he actually solved the field equations for general relativity. And if you're not up on your Einstein, that's okay. I'm just I'm uh, just building a bridge here to our argument for tonight basically what he discovered is that as you go back in time, the curvature of space-time gets infinitely tight. In other words, the universe, as you go back in time, the universe, which is now curved upon itself because of gravity and mass, if you go back far enough in time, it actually it gets smaller and smaller and tighter and tighter and tighter, infinitely so, until uh, you, till you get to a place called zero spatial volume. In other words, if you go far back enough in in history, you have a zero point in time and you have a zero point in space. Now, I throw the question out. How much matter do you think you can put in zero spatial volume? Any guesses? None. (laughs) None. They called it a singularity. That was the prevailing view at the time. and and we're still using the term cosmological singularity today, but you can't put anything in zero spatial volume by definition. And that would seem to suggest, uh, Hawking's work seemed to suggest that, again, the universe had a beginning point and it came into existence prior to the existence of any singularity. Where did the singularity come from? It was a fascinating discovery. It's, it actually corresponds to the Christian doctrine of creatio ex nihilo, creation out of nothing, where God simply spoke the worlds into existence, Genesis 1.1. What does Genesis 1.1 say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, Billy Graham once said, give me Genesis 1.1. I don't have trouble with anything else in the Bible. And you know, that's still where we're being tripped up today. Creation out of nothing. The cosmological singularity. Uh, The secular cosmologists were saying that the cosmological singularity is a point at which the laws of physics break down. And things happen contrary to what we know to be the law of physics, the laws of physics. Um, Basically, all that to say this what Hubble discovered. What Einstein discovered in, in the theory of general relativity and the expanding universe, you that's remarkably similar to Genesis 1 1, creation out of nothing. And you go far back enough, you get to a place where time itself begins and space itself evaporates. Now, that's, that takes you to about the 1960s, uh, the mid 1960s in, in science, scientific history. Arno Penzias, who's a Nobel laureate, I think I have his quote in your notes there. He's the guy who accidentally discovered background radiation. He was just a general issue garden variety type of a physicist working for Bell Laboratories. And he actually discovered background radiation. And it was exactly what it was supposed to be, 2.7 degrees above absolute zero. He said this, the best data we have concerning the Big Bang are exactly what... I would have predicted had I nothing to go on but the five books of Moses, the Psalms, and the Bible as a whole. Now, isn't that fascinating? Uh, In other words, he's saying, let's for a moment just treat the biblical witness with respect, uh, the biblical worldview, as a working hypothesis. What evidence would we find? He said, what we do find. Um, In other words, we have the beginning of a finite, that is not an eternal world, but a finite world, and the beginning of time itself. Turn to Titus chapter 1. The beginning of not just the material universe, but the beginning of time itself. Titus chapter 1. Could somebody read, you get there first, read it loud and proud like like one of our children going for an awana badge? Titus chapter 1, verse 2. Remember, I just said the evidence in the mid-1960s that observed by cosmologists suggested the universe had a finite beginning point in time and time itself had a beginning. Titus 1, verse 2. Before the age that began. What's another translation that you might have? promised long ages ago. Anybody else have the translation that says, before time began? Before the beginning of time. There's a hint in Scripture itself that time itself had a beginning. Now, isn't that interesting? I I throw that in for free. Um, Which worldview best explains the evidence? Which explanation has the causal power necessary to produce the effect? Does pantheism... I believe you talked about worldviews last time. Is that, is that true? Pantheism, God is everything and everything is God. God is in creation and not distinct. Uh, God is in this pew. God is in this lectern. God is in you. You are God. God is you. It's, that's a reduction of pantheism, but that's basically what it says. Can pantheism account for this effect known as the universe? Well, no. If you go back to a singularity, can you invoke the God of pantheism? Absolutely not, because he's part of what came into existence. Pantheism does not have explanatory power for the cause that produced the universe. Did you follow me there? Okay. How about materialism? How about materialism? There is no God. All we have is just what we see, Uh, naturalism or materialism. All that you see, there's no God, there's no divine cause producing effects. How in the world could that be? Um, there would be no matter to bring into existence. Uh, there's, there would be no matter to bring matter into existence. Do you remember um, Dennett's famous phrase uh, I introduced to you a couple, a couple uh, Wednesday nights ago? Dennett said, yes, we understand the dilemma here, but the universe produced itself. The famous atheist, Daniel Dennett, the universe produced itself. Now, that is philosophically absurd, and I would argue scientifically absurd as well. Because if something caused something else to be, that thing would have to predate itself. Right? I mean, he called it, he had the sense to call it the ultimate cosmological bootstrapping trick. And, and you know, when I use words like miracle, I get treated like the idiot. But he as a cosmologist is allowed to say cosmological bootstrapping trick, the universe produced itself which means the universe would have to predate itself to bring itself into existence, which means it would have to be and not be at the same time. That's a violation of the law of non-contradiction, wouldn't you say? We studied that when Pastor Jason uh, taught on truth. What is one of the, the law of non-contradiction. If you ask me, is Sonia pregnant? I say no. She says yes. We both can't be right. And one of us had better be wrong. <laughs> The law of non-contradiction. I mean, it clobbers itself all the time. These self-refuting statements that Pastor Jason talked about. No, the laws of nature... uh, The laws of nature can't even explain this. The laws of nature are descriptions of interactions within the universe including the space-time configuration, because we we dealt with that question a couple weeks ago, cosmologically speaking as well. The laws of nature don't have causal property. They're simply descriptions of relationships between various things within the time-space realm. So that doesn't work either. Um, So I think it's important to say this. Big Bang, and it's capitalized, and and by Big Bang, don't don't assume I believe everything the atheist believes about it um, billions of years ago. I mean, we'll, we'll get to that question eventually. I just, here's what I like about it. It it means that the universe had a beginning point. But notice, the Big Bang is not a causal theory. It's an affirmation that the first event took place at a finite time in the past. But it doesn't tell you what caused that first event. In other words, the Big Bang is really a theory of the first effect, not the first cause. Did you catch that? I think that's extremely important. The Big Bang, let me say it again, the Big Bang is really a theory of the first effect, not the first cause. Because you're still left with the question, where did that singularity come from? And physics cannot answer the question. Metaphysics struggles to answer the question. Alan Guth, the physicist, said this, The instant of creation remains unexplained. I like it when scientists are honest. I like it when theologians are honest, too. But uh, he just comes by and says, Stephen Hawking theoretical physicist, kind of started the ball rolling. Uh, The the field equations were general relativity. He said this, the actual point of creation lies outside the scope of presently known laws of physics. That's what he said uh, a while back. He's since changed his tune a little bit, and we'll update you on some of the arguments that he's now making along with Richard Dawkins as we continue through the series. But this is another reason. I think he's right here. It's another reason why the laws of physics cannot explain the origin of the universe. So if you rule out pantheism and you rule out naturalism, you're left with either deism or theism. And you remember the difference? Anybody remember the difference? What's the difference between deism and theism? Josh? Okay, good. That's, that's not a bad definition. In deism, God exists, but he's and, and he is separate, transcendent from his creation. He created this universe, but now he has nothing to do with it. It just kind of unwinds like a, a clock a, or a watch. Okay, that's deism. It's a, it's a bit of a reduction, but that's it in, in, its, in its essence. Theism, on the other hand, says yes, God created the universe, and God upholds the universe. And God interacts with his universe presently. In fact, he holds all things together, as the Bible says, by the word of his power. Okay, so there's a difference between... Both of these could account for what we're talking about here. Remember, we said when you're talking about natural theology, classical apologetics, the best you can do is get to the existence of God. But which one? More is needed to make the leap, as C.S. Lewis went from being a theist to a Christian... More evidence was needed. He made that journey. I don't know if Antony Flew did. Uh, we were talking about Antony Flew a moment ago. Uh, I hope he did. I hope he did. So, we, we're, we're contending now we've either got theism or deism. More exploration is needed. Um, Charles Townes, uh, Nobel laureate, said this, In my view, the question of origin seems always left unanswered if we explore from a scientific point of view alone. What is science? Observation. And reasonable conclusions from those observations. If we only invoke science without philosophy, without metaphysics, without theology, he says, you're you're never going to get there. Thus, I believe that there is a need for some religious or metaphysical explanation. I believe in the concept of God and in his existence. I like putting quotes like this in here because a lot of what you young folks are going to be hearing in university, you're not going to get this. You're not going to get a whole list or a compendium of scientists who believe. And there's an entire organization called Scientists Who Believe. And so once in a while, we'll throw in uh, not just the atheist quotes and their position, but also the theist as well. So um, if you posit the existence of a deity, says... Charles Towns, you can explain the origin of the universe. Now, is that just is that just is it artificial to just posit something like that that you think has explanatory power and s- explanatory scope to account for all the data? Is that just is that is that cheating? Well, maybe, except for the fact that none of the other metaphysical hypotheses are positing powers to produce the effect in question. They're just not doing it. Um, And if you're talking about the origin of space and time itself, you need something that exists outside of space and time. And interestingly, theists have always conceived of God in exactly that way. A self-existent, transcendent God. Exodus chapter 3. Moses at the burning... He sees a burning bush. "'I must turn aside and see this strange thing, a bush that is on fire but is not consumed.'" It wasn't strange that a bush should burst into flames. I mean, that happened all the time in the desert when the conditions were right. The fact, what captured Moses was that here's this bush that's on fire, but it's not being consumed. And Moses draws near, and he hears a voice telling him, take off your shoes for the place where you're standing is holy ground. And he gets that mission to go to Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go. And you know the story. Now, Moses says, who should I say is sending me? What did God respond? How did God respond to that question? Who should I say sent me? If I just show up at the palace of Pharaoh and say, let my people go, you know, well, who do you represent, you little pipsqueak? Who should I say sent me? What was God's response to that question? I am who I am. I am who I am. You got that one right. Okay, we keep score. <laughs> They're having a contest, I believe. Um, Yahweh is the Hebrew, the self-existent God, the one who owes his existence to no one or no thing. Remember that, that question we dealt with a couple weeks ago, well, if you're saying, Tim, that every, every effect has a cause, what caused God. And if you remember my response, it was twofold. Number one, my premise is not that everything has a cause. My premise was everything that begins to exist has a cause. That's, that's a bit of a dodge, and I admit it. But the second, the second response is, some things exist by the necessity of their own nature. Some things exist by the necessity of their own nature. We used, for example, numbers. The number seven. Where did seven come from? It just is. It exists by the necessity of its own nature. Um, And there are things like that in the universe, and we would say outside the universe, Yahweh being the prime one. So, in Scripture, we have the testimony that God himself is the self-existent, uncaused cause of everything. I am that I am. Or I will be what I will be. I was what I was. I am. Isn't it fascinating? And this is another study altogether. But when Jesus showed up, how many times do you see that expression on his own lips? I am. Yes, theism says that this God not only created the universe, he entered it. Became uh, subject to its laws in the person of Jesus Christ. Okay. Um, Revelation chapter 1, Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last the beginning and the end. And there he's taking more names of his father to himself. So, all that to say this, atheism is a theory that's running out of time, quite literally. Atheism is a theory that's running out of time. Now, that's our bridge from the cosmological argument to the teleological argument. The cosmological argument, as we've seen now for these several weeks, makes a compelling case that there's a transcendent cause of the universe. Okay, Transcendent meaning outside. Something outside the universe created the universe. The teleological argument goes a step further. The teleological argument makes a compelling case that there's an intelligent cause of the universe. There's purpose. There is intentionality. And yes, there is design. The word telos is Greek for goal or purpose. You can loosely translate it design. And that's where the the term teleological comes from. The teleological argument makes a compelling case that there's an intelligent cause of the universe. A few quotations from some physicists. Paul Davies at Adelaide University, he said this, the really amazing thing is not that life on earth is balanced on a knife edge, but that the entire universe is balanced on a knife edge and would be total chaos if any of the natural constants were off even slightly. Now, you might want to circle that word constants. We'll come back to it. Uh, but he's saying something very important here. It's not just, not just um, that this earth is finely tuned and appears to be designed and is balanced on a razor. The whole universe, he said, is like that. In fact, in the last several decades of cosmology, um, the the teleological argument has come roaring back because of discoveries made just between Stephen Hawking's heyday and now. And we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit tonight. So when we talk about design, we're not just talking about looking through a microscope. We're talking about looking through a telescope as well. It doesn't matter which direction you look through the telescope or the microscope. There is evidence of design. And so we're going to spend a couple of weeks actually looking at, at that evidence. Uh, Martin J. Reese, Cambridge University prof, said this. The possibility of life as we know it depends on the values of a few basic physical constants, and, uh, and it, in some respects, is remarkably sensitive to their numerical values. Nature does exhibit remarkable coincidences. Somebody wants to find a coincidence is when God winks. Uh, that's not a half bad definition. Um, he's saying something very important there. Again, he's just, I'm just stacking up these quotes because even atheistic or deistic or, or sometimes theistic uh, cosmologists, obviously, would say these kind of things. Here's another one. Sir Fred Hoyle. Remember, I, you saw that name earlier tonight, Fred Hoyle when he had a whole problem with uh, the, this idea of a cosmological singularity and a starting point for the universe, and he was trying to find an alternate explanation. Do you remember that? We talked about that a little bit earlier. Um, he, 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 yeah, he said, yeah, Hubble, I see what Hubble sees, but I'm just not convinced he's got the right explanation for it. And so I'm going to find an alternate theory. And he was gravitating away from anything that smelled of theism. But later in his career, Fred Hoyle actually came back to saying things that were theistic. And here's one of them. A common sense interpretation of the data is that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics as well as with chemistry and biology. I wish he had cho- chosen another word besides monkeyed, but I mean, that's, we'll get to biology eventually. But you see what he's saying there? There's intelligence behind this. There's, there's purpose and intentionality behind this. Um, Fascinating admission for somebody who used to try to run from anything that smelled of theism later in his career. I can't deny the evidence. Now, I can respect a person like this as you know what? Just looking at the evidence, I got to go with it. It's the best explanation. Okay, well, then let's look at the teleological argument as it is. Uh, First, a summary, because this can get pretty tedious. we'll take questions in just a moment. We'll lay this out, and then we'll interact a little bit. Uh, Here it is. By way of summary, there is compelling evidence. The teleological argument says this. There's compelling evidence for the intelligent design of the entire universe because of fine-tuning. Fine-tuning of laws of physics and chemistry. Intelligent design is the best explanation for fine-tuning of the universe as a whole. Okay? So... What we're saying, uh, the entire universe now, again, through the telescope and through the microscope, both directions, the presence of fine-tuning. Now, William Lane Craig, who we quoted quite a bit so far, an apologist, a uh, Christian theist, um, ordained in our own denomination and all that we talked about, he said this, and I think it's an important caveat that I want to throw out right away. It is important to understand that by fine-tuning, one does not mean designed. Now, we sometimes, for shorthand, call this the argument from design, And there's a reason for that, but but note what he's saying here. It's important to understand that by fine-tuning, one does not mean design. Otherwise, the argument would be obviously circular. We see design, there must be a designer. Okay, that's a circular argument. It's logically invalid. Rather, during the last 40 years or so, says Craig, scientists have discovered that the existence of intelligent life depends upon a complex and delicate balance of initial conditions given in the big bang itself this is known as the fine-tuning of the universe so what he's saying here and and what we're going to be focusing on tonight are these initial conditions and the conditions that are in the universe presently that must be what they are otherwise life as we know it could not exist there would be no intelligent life we would not be having this conversation okay so, I want to lay out the formal argument then. Remember, we, we talked about what logic is and what syllogisms are. Here is what the syllogism would look like. The formal argument is as follows. The fine-tuning of the universe is due to either... Okay, you have got three options here. Physical necessity just has to be the way it is. There's no other possibility. Chance, randomly... Our universe is randomly what it is, you know. Or design. Those are your three possibilities. Um, the second premise is it is not due to physical necessity or chance. And to support that premise, what we would have to do then is destroy the first two possibilities, physical necessity or chance. And actually, I think a couple of weeks ago, we, we exploded the notion of chance. I think we already dealt with that. So we'll deal with physical necessity tonight. But if those two premises are true, it logically follows, then therefore it is due to the design. That's your logical conclusion. And so this is a logically valid argument And remember, we said arguments are not true or false. They're either valid or invalid. Our intention, our purpose is to demonstrate the truth of the premises. And if you can demonstrate the truthfulness of the premises, and one of your tools in the toolbox for doing that is to demonstrate that that this is more plausible than its negation. Remember, we talked about that. Then you've got a good argument, all right? So... That's basically the teleological argument in a nutshell. We, that's where we're going tonight. Um, really, when it comes to this argument, there are two realms, as I've already said. There is the cosmological evidence, that is, when you look through the telescope and you look at astronomy and what's happening in that discipline and among cosmologists, philosophers, scientists who make conclusions about the data, that's, that's some evidence that we can look at, and we'll be looking at that tonight. And then you can go in the other direction. Terrestrial evidence that is look through, look at the world around us, look through the microscope, look at DNA, look at cells. In Michael Behe's term, uh, cells are irreducibly complex. That's an argument for design and to design. Uh, But we're going to focus on that first one. They're cosmological evidence. So we're going to look through the telescope first. All right, we're going to we're going to space out tonight. (laughs) But that's the argument. That's just sort of the prelude. Introduction and the terrain of the argument, so let me stop there and see I, I did that intentionally fast because some of this was sort of review, but are there any questions any um, any questions of clarification? Are we okay so far? Josh is just kind of hanging out over there, going with the vibes yeah, Jeff. Yes, we're going to get that. We'll, we'll get that tonight, the multiple world theories, uh, the, the, you know, the world ensemble, the theory of everything, string theory. Lord, help us not to get into that. <laughs> string theory is one of them. Um, we'll try not to get overly complex, but uh, remember, the first night we laid out the outline of this discipline called apologetics, and we're sort of doing a flyover here. Just, you know, whet your appetite a little bit. You can land the plane. You know, having done the flyover, you can land the plane on any of these areas that really interest you. Pastor Jason right now is working on, on the moral argument, which which we pretty much agree is the strongest argument when it comes to natural theology. So a couple of weeks we'll be unfolding that. Um, maybe you really grab it. You, man, that's, that's, there's some strength to that argument. I'm going to follow this up. You might want to start right with C.S. Lewis because that's how he begins mere Christianity. So we're, we're kind of doing just a flyover. You can land the plane wherever you want, and you can spend the rest of your life in any one of these areas. Um, so... Good question. We'll we'll get to some of the alternate theories um, beyond the Big Bang. Okay. Cosmological evidence. As we've talked about before, the universe is expanding at a very precisely calibrated rate. We know that astronomically. And theists and atheists all agree. The universe is expanding at a very precisely calibrated rate. This precisely calibrated rate is life-friendly. In other words, it has to be, it absolutely has to be what it currently is, that rate of expansion. Otherwise, life as we know it would be impossible. And, and it is almost universally agreed among cosmologists, again, atheists, theists alike, that if the universe were expanding faster than it is now, then there would be no structure in the universe. Uh, galaxies and stars could not form. If it were expanding too fast... The necessary material would not be able to come together and hold together to form the material universe that we know. Okay, again, everybody agrees with that. I should say almost everybody agrees with that. And also, conversely, if the universe were expanding slower than it is, the universe would collapse back on itself. And instead of having the Big Bang, you would have the Big Crunch. It would go, <laughs> you know, it's expanding now. And if at some point, it, like the oscillating universe, Um, it would come back and it would crunch on itself. It would not be able to, uh, in other words, the gravitational pull would not be able to overcome the expansion that's happening. And so it, or actually it would overcome it and it would collapse back like a rubber band. All right? So either of these options, uh, they don't work. They wouldn't allow for a life-permitting and life-sustaining universe. Um, Central to that observation is something uh, called a fine-tuning parameter, what's referred to as the cosmological constant. Now, kind of follow along here. This, this is critical, and, and everybody knows it's critical, theist and atheist alike. The cosmological constant is the vacuum energy of free space that is partially responsible for the expansion rate. What does that mean? Here, here's, let me boil it down this way. Just as the expansion rate of the universe is finely tuned... One of the factors responsible for the expansion rate is also finely tuned, something called the cosmological constant. Let's take a look at this brief video. Um, it, It actually talks about the cosmological constant and the implications of such a reality in this universe. The key issue is what we still do
1: was possible to believe that the laws of nature were not so precisely set as to require the hand of a creator. But then a completely new fundamental property of the universe was discovered. An anti-gravity force present in space itself. It is called the cosmological constant and when cosmologists calculated its effect on the evolution of the universe they realized it had to be very finely tuned indeed.
2: The fine tunings, how fine, how fine tuned are they? Most of them are 1% sort of things. In other words, if a thing is uh, 1% different, uh, everything is bad. And a physicist could say maybe those are just luck. On the other hand, this cosmological constant is tuned to one part and 10 to the 120, 120 decimal places. Nobody thinks that's accidental. That is not a reasonable idea. That something is tuned to 120 decimal places just by accident. That's the most extreme example of fine-tuning.
1: No force in the history of cosmology has ever been discovered to be that finely tuned. The cosmological constant needs to be set to one part in a trillion, 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 trillion. Otherwise, the universe would be so drastically different that it would be impossible for us to evolve. Let the cosmological constant arrived at such a tiny value by chance seemed to be out of the question. But the alternative explanation was also impossible to contemplate.
2: Physicists uh, did not want to accept the idea that the laws of nature might be controlled by uh, by, well, the benevolence of nature. There should be no reason why the luck should just have it that we can exist. It's too much, it's, it's a stretch, it's much too far to stretch.
1: It seemed that hidden in the laws of nature was a value so precise that it was impossible to deny that our universe was designed. But a designed universe requires the existence of a designer, a notion that even the anthropic scientists did not want to entertain.
0: laws of nature might be controlled by the, the and then he stumbled, by the, by, by the benevolence of nature. Did you catch that? What's he trying to avoid? The word God, the G word. Oh, good heavens, scientists can't say that. He goes on to say, there should be no reason why the luck should just have it that we can exist. That's much, far too much of a stretch. Seemed that hidden in the laws of nature was a value so precise that it was impossible to deny that our universe was designed, but a designed universe requires the existence of a designer. And these are scientists talking, folks. That's not a raving, fundamentalist, lunatic, revivalist preacher up there saying this. We seem to live in a Goldilocks universe. What do I mean by that? This one's just right. Not too hot, not too cold. What, are you not up on your fairy tales, <laughs> Goldilocks and the Three Bears? Uh, put it this way: John Polkinghorn uh, has a. He has a wonderful illustration. He, he said, "Imagine for a moment that you get in a spaceship and you go far, 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 far out into space, and you come to finally the cosmic control center." Of the universe, And there are 35 dials, and that's, that's what cosmologists have discovered. There are about 35 constants, in our experience, that must be exactly what they are, otherwise life would not exist, life as we know it. 35 dials. For example, uh, things like the expansion rate of the universe, that has to be what it is. The speed of light, uh, C in the famous E equals MC squared, uh, equation of Einstein. Mass density. There's a dial called strong nuclear force, weak nuclear force. There's a dial called ratio of protons to electrons. You've studied, remember the atom, protons, neutrons, and electrons? There's a calculation, a mathematical con- uh, calculation of protons to electrons. That ratio has to be what it is. It has That dial has to be set where it is. Otherwise, life, this universe would not permit life. There's a dial called electromagnetic Uh, constant and solar luminosity and on and on. There's 35 dials. Okay, you're in your spaceship. You finally get out there and you're at the cosmic control center and you see all 35 dials set just right. You remember, um, what was it? one of the cartoons? Uh, Bullwinkle? Don't touch that dial or the universe will collapse. Don't touch that dial. But... Why are the dials set where they are? Pokinghorn says that the most natural inference is that there is a dial setter, a fine tuner. In other words, the universe is a setup job. Sir Fred Hoyle again. A common sense interpretation of the data suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with the physics as well as with the chemistry and biology. George Greenstein, an astronomer, says this The thought instantly arises that some supernatural agency, or rather, agency, capital A, must be involved. It is, is it possible that suddenly, without intending to, we have stumbled upon scientific proof of the existence of a supreme being? Well, what are the chances? What are the chances? Cosmologists agree that the probability of each parameter, each dial, in Polkyhorn's illustration, being set to what it actually is set at, is infinitesimally small. That you get all those dials at just the right place. It's it's really the probability of that is infinitesimally small. They disagree, however, what the significance of that infinitesimally small probability is. That's That's where theists and atheists part company. We'll talk about that. And basically, to to sort of illustrate what I'm talking about here, imagine standing somewhere in the state of Delaware, and you you're you're blindfolded. You've got in your hand a high-powered rifle, and you are shooting at a sheet roughly the size of Pennsylvania. And somewhere on that sheet, the size of Pennsylvania, there is one fly. Now let's we're in Berks County. Let's make it a stink bug. One stink bug somewhere on a white sheet the size of Pennsylvania. You're standing in Delaware, blindfolded with a high-powered rifle. They spin you around, and you just happen to take out the stink bug. That's roughly the mathematical possibility of all of these dials being set to where they need to be for, for the universe to sustain life. Are, are you getting an idea of how... Um, And yet, some people say, yeah, that happened. That happened. We'll get to why, why they say that. But I want to illustrate the absurdity of of thinking that that is, that that explanation has causal power. That that explanation is legitimate. I think, for the most part, we're suspicious of chance being a suitable explanation for the alignment of conditions that results in a specific outcome. For example, um, garden variety... Padlock, okay? Combination lock. And there are, middle-aged eyeballs, 40 40 numbers on it, times 3, okay? So the combination to open this lock, the mathematical probability that I could just give it to one of you, and without knowing the combination, you could open it, is 1 in 40 times 1 in 40 times 1 in 40. Somebody want to do that? Get a calculator? 1 in 40... That number times one in 40 times one. Do you, see, do you see where that comes from? Diane, give it a whirl. Three numbers, any numbers, open the lock. You think she'll be able to do it? Anybody have a calculator? Anybody working on that? One in 7,200. That, does that work? 40 times 40. Astronomical. And that's one divided, that big number, 40 times 40 times 40, one divided by that. This is, you know, it's, unless you're well caffeinated, you just <laughs> did it. Anybody else want to try? Sharon? Oh, come on. Just for fun. Just for fun. Tracy? Here you go. Come on. Tracy, you're a softball player. You're an athlete. You can do anything. Come on. Think she'll do it? If anybody can do it. <laughs> what is that number? 40 times 40 times 40. 64,000. So 1 divided by 64,000, that's your mathematical probability of her getting it. You get it? Have we proved our point here? Anybody else want to try? Of course you want to try. <laughs> Josh is going to try. 1 over 40 times 1 over 40 times 1 over 40. You have that number yet? Amy's a tax specialist. She can do anything with numbers. <laughs> What is it? (laughs)
1: How'd
0: you do that? Tell us what really happened. Uh, You're in church. <laughs> and the combination? No, no. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> as soon as he opened this, remember, remember I said, we're suspicious. We are suspicious of chance being a suitable explanation for the alignment of conditions that results in specific outcomes. As soon as he opened it... Now, some of you are laughing because it looked like I had been embarrassed. But the joke's on you. You knew intuitively. He was in on this. That this was rigged. You knew it. You knew it was rigged. Although with Josh, anything is possible, I guess. (laughs) What are the chances... What are the chance? Well, we gave you a mathematical point zero 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 one five something, okay? And you can, after that, it's incomprehensible values, and you have no idea how to visualize it. I think let's hear it for our. You want the lock? Why don't you, since you know the combination. All right. You knew. You knew something was up. Now I want you to imagine everybody in the United States of America doing that very same thing. They don't have the combination. And they all get, all 350 million of us, we open our lock on the first try. That's this number we're talking about when it comes to the cosmological constant. Anybody sensing intuitively that the game is rigged by a capital R rigger? now here 's why we infer design let 's get i don't want to be i don't want to be flipping here. this is important why do we Why do we not infer design merely because of improbability? i mean improbable things happen all the time. Some people win the lottery right that's kind of improbable. We infer design because of what 's called specified improbability. In other words, conformity to a meaningful, independently given pattern. In other words, the same guy doesn't win the lottery every day that he plays. Then you would know the thing was rigged. See the difference? There is a specified probability or improbability. Um, Think for a moment of a chimpanzee sitting at a computer keyboard just Moving its digits, you may get something that's just a page full of gibberish when the thing is printed, or but what if, what if you got a Shakespearean sonnet? Love is not love which alters when it alteration finds, nor bends with the mover to remove. oh no, it is an ever fixed mark that okay, you would know what's going on here or how about? The perfect poker hand, and I hope you don't know what that is. I don't, but I'm just, the perfect, <laughs> the perfect poker hand being dealt every single time. A pinochle, I, I like pinochle. I know nothing about bridge. Dutch, Dutch blitz, if you like. What The probability of getting that hand every time it's the same, it doesn't matter. But if a perfect hope, poker hand, a full house, let's say, is that, is that the highest? Royal flush. Let's suppose a... <laughs> Let's suppose we dealt a royal flush every time. It's the same probability as any other hand. 1 in 52, 1 in 52, times 1 in 52, times 1 in 52, times the number of cards you give. Okay, mathematically, the probability is the same. But if you get the same pattern every time, a royal flush every time, you know the thing's rigged. And if you do that at Vegas, I, they tell me. That they throw you out of the casino. The game's rigged. The correlation of conditions that allow for life and the value of the constants of fine-tuning forms a functionally significant outcome. Functional, I would call life a functionally significant outcome, wouldn't you? Well, most of you. <laughs> the teleological argument does not contend for the existence of any universe... However improbable it might be, no, it contends for the existence of a specific, highly improbable, life-permitting, life-sustaining universe against all odds to the contrary. This fine-tuning I would submit to you cries out for an explanation. So don't let people throw at you a bogus lottery analogy. As soon as this is highly improbable and the number is .00 or 10 to the, you know, 10 billion. No, no, the correct lottery analogy would be something like this. Um, winning the lottery every single day. The same guy winning it. That's closer. So don't let people say, well, improbable things happen all the time. Uh, A life-sustaining universe could come into existence improbably. Don't buy it. We're not even in the same realm. So that's why we infer design. Um, Or or let's get even more specific. I, I want you to think, if you can think of these high numbers... I want you to imagine a sea of of red balls. How many? A billion, billion, billion. And one of them is white. A sea of red balls, one of them is white. A billion, billion, billion. That's that's how many you've got in this pile. And you just happen to reach in and pick the white one five times in a row. That's the number we're talking about here. Okay. Okay. Now, William Dempsey, uh, who has a book called The Design Inference, says that there's two features essential to a design inference. Number one, a highly improbable event. That's, it starts there, obviously, but you need more than that. Secondly, you need a pattern or a functional outcome. He uses the illustration of Mount Rushmore. Mount Rushmore. You're, you're walking through you know, the mountainous areas, and you just see mountains, and they all, you know, but then all of a sudden you see George looking down from the mountain. What does that suggest? Well, is it possible, mathematically possible, for geological forces to just happen to create George Washington's face? I guess it's mathematically possible. The problem is, you've got a quarter in your pocket that corresponds to that. It's a pattern. Do you see, you see the difference? So it's not just probability. It's probability plus pattern. Uh, fine-tuning allows life to be. And that's why this goes, from, this goes way beyond intuition now to argument. This number is astronomically small. Back to Jeff's question. But what about? The, uh, obviously, cosmologists know this. Atheistic cosmologists know this number. What do they do with it? Well, the anti-design counter-argument is this, or the anti-design, I should say the, the anti-design argument, or the counter-argument to the cosmological constant is this. It's something, and, and, and just you know, kind of set aside the terminology here, that can sometimes throw us, but it's something called the weak anthropic principle, or WAP for short. It goes like this. Generally speaking... We should not be surprised that we live in a universe in which the conditions that are necessary for our existence are actually present. Let me say that again. We should not be surprised that we live in a universe in which the conditions that are necessary for our existence are actually present. Specific, more specific to the teleological argument that we're talking about tonight this principle goes like this. We should not be surprised to observe a finely tuned universe because if the universe were not finely tuned, we wouldn't be here to observe it and be surprised by it. That's the best you can do. Did you follow that? I mean, I know we're, it's getting late and, you know. Uh, are you buying that? Did you buy it? I think we're outside the realm of science now, aren't we? We're in metaphysics, clearly. Now, here's the counter-argument to the counter-argument. Part of the WAP, WAP I'm Italian, I can't. that was a slip, uh, Valentino, my name ends in a vowel. Uh, part of the WAP is logically fallacious. Now, here's the true part of the statement. We should not be surprised that we do not observe conditions that are incompatible with our existence. That's a true statement. Why? Well, because if they were incompatible with our existence, we wouldn't be here to observe them. Now, that's true, but I would say it's trivially true. Yeah, that's... But what does not follow logically from the first premise is the rest Is We should not be surprised that we do observe conditions that are compatible with our existence. This is not necessarily true. Let me go back over uh, that again. We should not be surprised that we do observe conditions that are compatible with our existence. That does not follow. Why not? Precisely because of the phenomenon of specialized, or specified improbability. Let me give you an illustration. The firing squad illustration. You are sentenced to die. Sharon Hefner, we're going to execute you. And so we take you to uh, the facility where shootings are done, and we blindfold you. We give you a cigarette, last meal, any last words? Okay, we stand you there, and there are a hundred rifleists... With guns aimed at Sharon, and they're going to take her out by order of the state. And we all hear, "They're ready, aim, fire," and you get this this loud crash of bullet fire. And then, when the dust settles, Sharon is just standing there. She's still alive, chewing on her cigarette. <laughs> Sorry, just kidding. Um, it's a bit like saying this. I guess I shouldn't be surprised that they all missed. After all, if they hadn't missed, I wouldn't be here to be surprised. Given that I'm still here, I would have expected them all to miss. That's what this crazy WAP is alleging. Isn't that ridiculous? That's the best they can do to undercut the cosmological constant. Now, that's obviously ridiculous. You could reasonably be, uh, reasonably conclude the whole thing was a setup. They all intended to miss. Or their rifles weren't loaded. Or something explains why she's still standing here. This principle is often used as an argument against those who would infer design based upon the specified improbability of a life-permitting, life-sustaining universe, but it's clearly a fallacious argument. Don't fall for it. There's another one. Uh, sometimes... Philosophers like thought experiments and, um, and, and word pictures. It just kind of helps some of these lofty principles. Um, it's the case of, of, of insurance fraud. Let's suppose that you're an insurance adjudicator or whatever they're called. They go out. There's a, a building burned down, and you are cha- charged with going down to find the cause so you know how to settle the insurance claims. And you do all your work, and you come back to the home office, and you say to your boss, oxygen caused the fire. well, oxygen is a necessary condition. You learn this in Boy Scouts, right? Oxygen is a necessary condition for a fire. But there's something wrong here. Um, We're not merely looking for a necessary condition to explain the event, but a sufficient condition to explain the event. In this case, the principal reason for a fire happening as opposed to not happening. Now, technically, and we'll, we'll go by this quickly, but the problems with the weak anthropic principle are these. Number one, it does not explain why the necessary conditions of life in the universe are so improbable. And secondly, it confuses a necessary condition with a, with a cause, and they're radically different. But I think the illustration's kind of captured a little bit better. All that to say this, uh, a philosopher, and mathematician, by the name of Brad uh, or uh, David Berlinski, you might remember this guy from... If you watched Ben Stein's Expelled, anybody remember that? This guy was quoted, he was he was on he was captured on video several times. This guy is ethnically Jewish. He's a mathematician, philosopher. He has for a long time resisted um, any theistic inclinations. But again, as he gets older, like Anthony Flew and, and begins to examine the stuff more deeply, he there, there's a brute honesty about him, and that's why I think Ben Stein kept quoting him on expelled. He says this, no argument can ever be absolutely conclusive. And the anthropic fine-tuning argument stops just short of knockdown proof. But there could have been millions and millions of different universes created with each with differing settings. Or I'm sorry, I've got the, I'm the wrong page, sorry. (laughs) Ah, I need more caffeine too. If you want speculative extravaganza. And I love that expression, speculative extravaganza. You do no better than turning to contemporary physics. The answer that Brandon Carter gave, and he was one who popularized the, uh, the WAP, he said this, Well, you know, guys, if the universe weren't fine-tuned for our existence, we wouldn't be here. <laughs> and he retorts, but we are here, so it is fine-tuned for our existence. Obviously, something necessary has occurred, argues Berlinsky. What better explanation than the fact that what is necessary is necessary? Whereupon the door discreetly closes and the physicists stalk off. They just don't like this conclusion. I love it. Now, for these uh, getting further into the arguments of well, what explains this this astronomically small number of the cosmological constant? What 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 does an atheist do with it? Well, here you go, Um, Carl Sagan popularized that expression billions and billions emphasis on the b you know he's long since stepped into eternity Uh, but he used to make the argument that the cosmos is all that there is and all that there ever was all that there ever will be no god nothing but here's here's the here's the prevailing theory of why that cosmological constant looks so small and intimidating to an atheist they've got an answer for it here it is they posit what's called a world ensemble. They propose that there are many worlds, many universes, whether well, the multiverse, not a universe, not just one, but multi. There's a, this is a multiverse. We now are just in one universe, but there are many, many more universe I. It's the multiverse theory. Um, In other words, there's a vast number of other universes that exist. And if that's true, then we can explain our universe as a legitimate chance in a cosmic lottery. The specified improbability of fine-tuning is no longer a necessary explanation. So you see what just happened here. It's not just one universe. There's a gazillion universes. I mean, it's a gazillion. Um... It's like having the whole sheet the size of Pennsylvania filled with flies. So they're suggesting. In other words, chance has been resurrected now by the existence or the, or the projected positive existence of a gazillion other universes of which our universe is just one of many, 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 many. many. Which means what? the probability of that cosmological constant in our universe is not as improbable as we thought there's not as many ping pong balls in the Pennsylvania lottery machine okay that's essentially what we're what we're saying what they're saying here chance gets a new lease on life and it resurrects the possible existence of other universes but let's speculate for a moment what would the generator of a vast number of universes look like? Where did they all come from? Where is it? And is there any evidence, Mr. Dawkins, for such a universe generator? And the answer is no. There is not one shred of evidence for the existence of any universe beyond this one, none. But fearing the implications of that infinitesimally small cosmological constant, you've got to somehow make that number larger and, and more, more possible. So you just shrink the size of the universe in which it plays. No pun intended. <laughs> Are you with me? You following what I'm saying? Um, uh, the lottery used to have to correctly select, what is it, eight balls, 12 ball uh, numbers? What is it? Six. <laughs> Just kidding. Six, okay. Now you only have to get one right. <laughs> um, or you reduce the number, you reduce the number of, maybe there's what? How many are in the, the whole tank? 36? 52, okay. You take the number from 52 down to four. Now your chances are one in four instead of one in 52. That's what this game is doing. And it is all theoretical. <laughs> it's all theoretical. There's no evidence for it whatsoever. Um, one, one theistic cosmologist has uh, had, had talked to... He uses the illustration of... You know what a bread-making machine is? And, you know, I can have you over and we, used our, we made bread with our bread-making machine. And look at this bread. Isn't it wonderful? It's just such a finely-tuned, nice... It does what we want it to do, and it, it cranks up. But what this theory is saying is that we now have a bread-making-making machine. A machine that makes bread-makers, my question is, have we solved the problem? Even just taking the theory at face value, have we solved the problem? Well, I've I have some questions here. Where did the universe generator itself come from? Does I mean, you've got the same problem with the bread making maker as you do with a bread maker, don't you? Where did it come from? I see it sitting there on the counter. Where did it come from? Very nice to have a bread maker. Oh, it was a nice bread maker. It came from Sears or whatever. Where'd the bread making maker come from? You're just pushing the problem back one level. Does not the universe generator itself have to be finely tuned? I mean, it's it's if you're gonna make bread, you gotta fine-tune your bread maker. It's gotta be set at certain settings, you gotta put the right ingredients in it, or you're gonna get something else other than bread. It's gotta be fine-tuned. Well. If that's true of the bread maker, don't you think that's also true of the bread making maker? Or the bread maker maker? I think you're with me. (laughs) Does this hypothesis not just push the problem back one level and not solve anything? Does this hypothesis not violate the principle of Occam's razor? Anybody remember that? What's Occam's razor? Do not unnecessarily multiply causes those guys obviously don't use occam's razor (laughs) i do it's a philosophical principle do not unnecessarily multiply causes one cause will do if it's a good one you see what's going on here in cosmology we just don't like that conclusion so we had better keep working on one we like Paul said that's what happens. Romans chapter 1. It's not for a lack of evidence. What what happens with fallen man? It's not that there's not enough evidence. What do we do with the evidence? We suppress it. Stephen Meyer. I think you saw a a clip of him last week. He said this. No argument can ever be absolutely conclusive. And the anthropic fine-tuning argument stops just short of a knockdown proof. There could have been a million, millions and millions of different universes created with each different settings of the fundamental ratios and constants. So many, in fact, that with one, uh, that one with the right set was eventually bound to turn up by sheer chance, namely this one. We just happen to be the lucky ones. But there is no evidence for such a theory whatsoever. On the other hand, the evidence for the truth of the anthropic fine tuning argument, not the, not the WAP, but this one is of such an order of certainty that in any other sphere of science, we would regard it as absolutely settled. To insist otherwise is like insisting that Shakespeare was not written by by Shakespeare because it might have been written by a billion monkeys sitting at a billion keyboards over billions of years. But so it might. But the sight of the scientific atheist clutching at such desperate straws has put new spring in the step of theists. For the first time in more than a hundred years, they no longer feel the need to apologize for their beliefs, perhaps now they should apologize for their previous apologies. Game set match Stephen Meyer. This is a reasonable conclusion as far as i 'm concerned, and then you can then we 'll have some questions and answers. Intelligent design provides the best explanation of the fine tuning of the laws of physics and chemistry, and thus it points. To not only a transcendent cause of the universe, but also an intelligent and rational one. A cause that exists beyond the universe and seems to have intentionally designed the universe with living beings in mind. As it says in Isaiah forty-five eighteen. this is what the Lord, Yahweh, the self-existent one, says. He who created the heavens, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. And he did... He did not create it to be empty. Listen, he did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. Purpose, intentionality, design. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Intelligent design is the best explanation for the fine-tuning that we find in the universe. Okay, um, there it is, a simple... uh, Remember, we're, we're just dealing here with the cosmological realm we'll get to i we'll look at dna and some other things in nature next time and go go to the terrestrial this is the cosmological evidence um but there it is we have a little bit of time left for um questions and answers i think we do have yeah i i remember to bring it this time so feel free to text it if you don't want to ask one in uh in in real life so questions comments um yes donna Yeah. Each uh, the theory says that each of those universe, your, each of those universes would have its own set of laws and constants, and they could be vastly different from this one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, to answer your question would be to theorize about a theory, and a bad one at that. Um, for a theory for which there's absolutely no evidence whatsoever. So you're compounding, just as, a, just as an exercise in logic and thought, you're compounding um, exponentially the difficulty of answering a question like that. Presumably, there would be uh, some interaction. This one's going to collide with that one. Or maybe not, because we just don't know what the universe generator is, where it is, what it's exactly doing. But you essentially have layer upon layer upon layer upon layer upon layer. I mean, they're all over the place. and I wouldn't even begin to know how to answer a question about a hypothetical theory for which there's no evidence. <laughs> but I'm sure it's done. We pay people big bucks for this. It's called tuition. That's a good question. Yes, Danny. Maybe. If the conditions are right, if it's got a cosmological constant similar to this one, what are the chances of that? Two? Like the lottery being won two days in a row? It's awfully quiet in here. Was that just like. uh... What is the combination? Hey, Josh, what's the combination? We want to rob you. <laughs> i to break in. No, no, it's yours. Other questions, comments? Yeah, Jeff. Yeah. Yeah. We, we. That's a, That's an illustration. It's often used for um, fulfilled prophecy. What are the chances that Jesus could have accidentally fulfilled all of the prophecies mentioned about him in the Old Testament? Yeah, that's – yeah, it might be might – be, actually, that's a smaller number than, than the cosmological – a lot smaller than the cosmological uh, constant. And, and that number itself is huge. But yeah, that's, that's, that illustration is uh, Texas, foot deep of quarters. You pick just the right one on your first try. And we will. That's now when when Jeff when we talk about fulfilled prophecy, what type of apologetic is that? Do you remember what's that called? Well, well, let me back up. What are the three major branches, three major types of apologetics? There's what we did tonight: classical or natural theology. We're not appealing to Scripture. There's another kind in which we do appeal to Scripture. That's called presuppositional apologetics, and then evidential apologetics. We're actually looking at things like fulfilled prophecy, archaeology, biblical criticism, and other things to make a case for the truth of... By the way, whenever you read one of those books, The Case For by Lee Strobel, that's an evidentialist apologetic. What he's doing is just throwing as much evidence out there as he can to help you come to the conclusion, yeah, I can believe this. Are you familiar with the case books? The Case for Easter, The Case for Christ, The Case for Faith, The Case for this, that, and the other. His swan song is going to be the case for Lee, (laughs) an autobiography. Other questions? Yeah, Jason? I think life is defined, um, help me out here, I think it's defined as um, an organism that uses the energy of its environment to process and then reproduce itself after its own kind. I think something like that is uh, how a cosmologist would define life. Of course, there's other ways to, for example, there's many ways to define a circle. You could define it geometrically. It's, um, (laughs) you don't want to hear about math, do you? Uh, A circle is geometrically defined as the set of all points equidistant from any given point in a plane P. Okay, that's a geometrical definition of a circle. There are other mathematical or algebraic definitions of a circle involving pi, r, and so forth. There are many ways to define life, but one way a cosmologist would define it is an organism that uses the energy of its environment to process it and then reproduce itself after its own kind. Um, Well, that sounds familiar. You read those words in Genesis 1 and 2, don't you? Um, And this produced after its own kind. You know, Zion and I come together. We don't produce a mule. (laughs) Okay, take me out of it. Generally speaking... (laughs) <laughs> Human beings, they come together, they reproduce after their own kind, and so um, in fact, when they don't, when they begin to violate that principle, um, there's almost like a biological stop, a mule, for example, you know, a horse and a donkey, you've got a mule, and that, it's a ser- sterile animal. So anyway, um, a, an important point that Jason's making yeah, usually, usually, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, and there are some things that shouldn't reproduce, let's just be honest. Oh, that's a good place to end, isn't it? What, what's that? <laughs> Anyone else? Hey, we're done like five minutes early tonight. Do you believe in miracles or what? Amen. God bless you.